Hello, hello. How are we doing? Good. Uh, this makes uh, week 21 in John. Uh, this is a fourth sermon in chapter eight. Uh, so we'll be bringing chapter eight to a conclusion and uh, and moving on forward uh, in our journey through uh, John. Are you, are you guys getting bored of John yet? No. OK, good. Me either. Um, there, there's lots and lots of good stuff to come. Uh, I'm really excited. Uh, we, we've got some uh, uh, Jesus going to heal a blind dude and then uh, he resurrects his buddy from the dead. So uh, it just keeps getting more and more uh, awesome. Um, at Gospel Community Church, uh, we like to uh, think positively uh, and, and we like to give encouragement uh, whenever whenever we can. Uh, and so I wanted to start tonight with just a, a word of encouragement um, to just to fill you with joy um, and, and just kind of uh, bring the spirit of the room up a little bit. And, and here's my encouragement and, and my positive thinking and, and uh, just to kind of lift the spirit of the room uh, by dropping this uh, truth bomb on you. Um, you and everyone, you know, uh, is going to die. You're going to die one day. Uh, there is a ticking time clock over every single one of our heads. Uh, that, that is counting down the seconds, the minutes, the hours, the days uh, when we will cease to breathe. Um, our hearts will stop beating. Uh, they will take us. They will put us in a box and they will stick us in the ground. And that will be it. Um, the, the truth that death is coming is unescapable. I mean, it, it's it's chasing you. It's coming after you. One day you will die and, and you can't stop it. And then once you die, you can't come back from it. Okay. Uh, and of course, there's lots of crazies that say they died and saw Elvis and all that stuff and they came back. I don't believe it. Um, once you die, you're, you're dead. There's no coming back. It's going to happen. You will die. And once you die, there is no coming back. Um, now, in thinking about that joyous truth that we all love to meditate on, uh, just kind of, man, so encouraging. I like to wake up first thing in the morning and just, man, I'm going to die. Um, but, uh, but, but thinking about that truth, um, our, our culture, though, is even though it is coming and there's no way to stop it. And, and even though uh, once it does happen, it's permanent. Um, that doesn't stop our culture uh, from doing everything that they can to avoid it and to not die. Um, and, and so you can drive by any gym on any given day and, and you'll see just, you know, cars everywhere, people trying to prolong death by exercise. And so they go and they, you know, lift weights and they work out so that they stay healthier, so that they live longer. And, and they do like crazy things like go to spin class. Has anyone ever been to spin class? I'm almost certain that in hell there will be spin class and Satan will be the one with the Britney Spears microphone yelling, feel the burn. Um, but but people will do uh, people will do get it feel the burn um, people do whatever it takes to prolong their life so they'll go exercise or they'll change their diet and like eat salads at every meal and uh, I mean you can go to Publix now and see like that uh, kind of uh, the organic food section just keeps getting larger and larger uh, because people are interested in uh, prolonging their life because they fear the inevitable and they they fear the fact that it's final they, they fear death we're afraid of it and so when when we go to buy a new car we think about 
about, uh, man, what's the safety rating? And, you know, like we, we, we want airbags like all over, you know, so that we if we get in the car wreck, we won't die because we're afraid of it. Um, our culture is so obsessed with not dying that even if we can't prolong it through exercise and food and, you know, safety and things like that, then we'll just try to at least look like we're not dying. And so we'll, you know, clip it and snip it and tuck it and fold it and uh, all, all kinds of cosmetic surgeries to, to make ourselves look like we're not dying. Um, you know, you just kind of go get the surgery that makes you forever, like, have a smile on. You know, it's like you can't, you know, things are terrible. They're like, why are you smiling? It's the, it's the surgery. Um, but, but we'll do whatever it takes to, to fight against death. And, and, and our culture is just absolutely um, enamored with warding off and fighting against death uh, because we know it's coming and we know it's final. And so we're, we're, we live in a culture that's absolutely scared to death of death. Um, but what I find is so amazing is the, the promise that Jesus makes in, in the text that we're going to look at today. So, so for a culture who is just scared to death of death, Jesus makes this promise. He says, if you keep my word, you will never see death. I mean, think about that. I mean, our, our culture scared to death of death. And Jesus goes, I, I've got this. Just, just if you keep my word, you, you will never see death. This thing that you're so afraid of, this thing that is so final, this thing that is coming for you. You don't have to see it. You don't have to taste it. You don't have to experience it. If you will just keep my word. That's the that's the promise that that Jesus makes. And so, I mean, just imagine, just imagine um, how different our world would be. Imagine how different your life would be if, if you actually believed that and if you actually lived that way. I mean, if, if you really believe that, hey, death isn't coming for me. How would that impact your life? How would that change your life if that truth really got down in your soul? That I, I'm not going to die. <laughs> I don't, I don't have to worry about that. Um, and so I, I want you to be thinking on that as we as we walk through this text tonight about um, what does my life look like today um, in view of eternity with Jesus? That, that, that's kind of what we're going to be pressing into this this whole talk. Um, my, my hope and my my prayer for you um, is that one day um, when you are there, you're the one that's in the box. Your, your friends and family has gathered around um, at your funeral. My, my hope and my prayer for you um, as people of Gospel Community Church is that whoever is, is preaching your funeral would stand up and, and they would motion to your casket and you say, you see this body here? He is not dead. That, that's my prayer for you, is that the preacher would stand and say, you see a body here, but she's not dead. You, you see... You see him laying here, um, but but he is not dead. That's that's my my prayer for you guys. Um, so let's walk through um, just kind of a quick overview of the text. What we're going to um, see tonight. Number one, after a long discourse from Jesus, the Jewish leaders have had enough and they slander him in the worst way they can think of. But Jesus responds in humility. Um, 
So Jesus has gone on this big, long discourse. The Jews, I mean, they, they just had it up to here uh, w- with this Jesus guy, with his rhetoric, with his um, rabble rousing, with, with everything. And, and they're just done with it. Uh, and, and so they just kind of start slandering him and, and, and cursing him. And, and they throw out two things. They, they call him a Samaritan and they say that he's possessed by a demon. Okay. Um, now, why is that such a big deal that they call him a Samaritan? Um, I know for me, a lot of times when, when I see Samaritan, I think of Samaritan, uh, I don't really see that as an insult because I think of, you know, the good Samaritan, you know, like we, we kind of give people that compliment in our culture. We say, oh, they're, they're a good Samaritan. Uh, so why is that a, uh, a, a slanderous remark? Uh, well, I'm going to do just a little bit of a history before we continue on with the, with the overview, just so you can understand the gravity of what they're saying about him. Um, in 720 BC, um, there was this, uh, the Jews were living in a, in a land called Samaria and there was another group, uh, called the Assyrians and the Assyrians came in and they basically sacked Samaria. Uh, they, they kill a whole bunch of people. They, they exile a whole bunch of the Jews, but some of the Jews actually stayed in Samaria under Assyrian rule. Okay. Uh, the Assyrians were, you know, awful dudes, like super, super pagans, uh, like, like they actually practiced child sacrifice and uh, like worshiped idols and all kind of crazy stuff. Uh, and so the Jews that were still living in Samaria, uh, once the Assyrians had conquered it, they had a decision to make. What, what are we going to do? I mean, are we, are we just going to stay here and die? Um, or are we going to intermarry with the Assyrians and adopt their religion? Um, and so the Jews that stayed there in Samaria did that. They, they just accepted the practices of the Assyrians and the Jews that were staying there stopped worshiping the God of the Bible. They started worshiping false idols, golden calves, um, making all these weird sacrifices. They would um, sacrifice their children like the Assyrians did. They, they intermarried. And so that basically destroyed everything that the Jewish culture held sacred. OK, um, their belief in God and their their bloodline. You know, you can see all throughout scriptures, you get these big, long list of this person begot this person begot this person, because to the Jewish culture, the fact that you are Jewish and preserving the bloodline was really, really important. Uh, and so for the Jews to intermarry with these pagan Assyrians, what was like too? what what are these guys thinking? Not to mention they're doing all these other weird practices. OK, so uh, the Jews that, that did not do that, the Jews that were exiled, they they see these people living in Samaria who have forsaken God and, and forsaken their bloodline. And, and the Jews began to hate the Samaritans. They, they hated them. They considered them subhuman. They, they considered them half-breeds and mongrels. Uh, and, and so when the Jews say, well, you must be a Samaritan, Jesus, they're calling him subhuman. They're calling him a mongrel. They're, they're saying that he has defiled and forsaken everything good and everything holy. That that's a that's a pretty rough insult, not to mention, they say you're a Samaritan, you're possessed by a demon. Um, So the man who shows up and does everything that God, the father does, he does everything he sees his father doing. The the God that was sent from God and filled with the Holy Spirit to do this incredible mission to come here and live the life that we should have lived and die the death. We should have died who walks in perfect sinlessness. They say you're possessed by a demon. Um, number two, Jesus then offers his enemies salvation from their terrible destination. He he says, if anyone, 
Anyone, meaning the people who just insulted me, the people who just called me a Samaritan, the people who say that I'm demon possessed. If anyone keeps my word, um, you'll never taste death. You won't taste it. You won't see it. You won't experience it. This thing that's chasing you, this thing that's coming after you. If you just just believe in me, just chase after me, then you won't experience it. They, they slander him and yell at him and, and cut him down. And he says, man, just I'm offering you salvation. I'm offering you a way out of your terrible plight. I'm offering you an alternate destination. Next, we see the Jewish leaders respond with a harsh question. Who in the heck do you think you are? They, they can't believe it. They can't. I mean, dude, this is Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth, the little, you know, podunk hit town. You know, this guy, th- this guy is going to be the one to offer us salvation. This guy is going to be the one that's going to deliver us from the impending doom of death. Right. This guy, really? Who, who does this guy think he is? He, he's saying that we don't ever have to see death. Well, what about Abraham? I mean, he was a pretty holy guy. What about the prophets? You know, I mean, th- those were pretty holy guys. I mean, ha- they're all dead. <laughs> they died. And this guy is saying that he can free us from death. Who does this guy think he is? That, that's their that's their response. Um, then Jesus corrects their doctrine by showing them the centrality of the gospel throughout all of Scripture. These guys were all about Abraham. I mean, like in, in this chapter, chapter eight, it's like again and again, our father, Abraham, our, you know, it's like this big deal. And they have no idea what Abraham was all about. Next, we see Jesus drops a gospel bomb and they try to kill him on the spot. So Jesus makes this statement. His statement is and we'll talk about it in a little while um, before Abraham was. I am that infuriated them so much that there was no trial. There was no jury. Uh, it was just straight to execution. He makes that statement and it ticks them off enough for them to say no more. We're done with this guy. And immediately they pick up rocks to, to throw at him. Uh, and then Jesus pulls a David Copperfield and just vanishes from the temple. Um and so that, that's kind of the, the overarching um, theme uh, that we see that we're going to see in the in the text tonight. Um, I, I hope that I mean, specifically in this chapter, but all throughout John, are you guys seeing the pattern of what happens? Jesus comes and, and he makes these radical claims. Um, people come back and say, no, that can't be right. Uh, then Jesus basically makes the same claim again, sometimes in a different way, uh, but but he makes the claim. People reject it. Jesus makes the same claim. People reject it again. And then Jesus just makes the claim again. I mean, it's just over and over and over. Jesus is coming up with new ways to explain to people that he is the savior come into the world. Uh, and, and again and again, people find new ways to reject him. And so the question is, but before we get into the text, I mean, why? Why is he doing this? I mean, is it hasn't he told them enough? Hasn't he come to a place to where Jesus can throw in the towel and say, you know what? I told him I was the bread. I told him I was the light. I told him, you know, I told him all this stuff and they've ignored me. And so I'm going to knock the dust off my sandals and and go on. You know, I'll I'll just go find the Gentiles and preach to them. Um, If you had if you had a close friend um, who was desperately trying to commit suicide, wouldn't you do everything in your power to stop them? 
to, to the point of physically fighting them if necessary. Jesus isn't coming against the Jewish leaders um, in, in a way where he's wagging his finger in a way where he's, you know, poking them in the forehead or he's coming at them in such a way that he's begging with them and pleading with them again and again and again that death is coming and I offer life. I don't want you to die. I don't want you to do this. And so the, the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders aren't necessarily like his arch enemy. And, and, and you know, they're like in this cosmic battle. Um, but but it's it's really Jesus coming to his fellow countrymen and and weeping over them, lamenting over them. And the Gospels, it tells us that Jesus looked over Jerusalem and he wept. And so I want you to understand the tone of where Jesus is coming from when he makes these statements again and again and again, pleading with his people, come to me, come to me, come to me. That's that's the heart of the, the Jesus that we serve. Verse 48 in chapter eight through verse 50, the Jews answered him. Are we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he uh, is the judge. Um, but they said, are we not right that you're a Samaritan? You're you're just a, you know, a dirty old half breed mongrel Samaritan um, and you're demon possessed. And th- this is like total speculation. So, um, you know, I'm allowed to do that because I have the microphone. Um, the total speculation here. He, he doesn't respond to the fact that they call him a Samaritan. He, he says, I don't have a demon. Um, and, and so this week I was kind of thinking, I mean, why, you know, if, if they if they have a two prong attack to Jesus, you're a Samaritan and you're demon possessed. And he comes back with very humbly. I'm, I'm not demon possessed. Uh, why does he totally leave out the the Samaritan thing? Um, well, I think. Because Jesus doesn't even want to dignify their silly racist remarks um, with with any type of retort. Now, we looked at the woman at the well, a Samaritan. Jesus does something that most Jews don't do. He actually goes into Samaria. Most Jews would spend the extra time to walk around Samaria. They would even go into Samaria. He sits down at a well and speaks to a Samaritan, which most Jews would never even talk to a Samaritan. He then asks her for a drink, saying, I'm willing to put my mouth where you have put your mouth. Most Jews used to carry their own utensils if they had to go into Samaria because they didn't even want to touch them because they, they viewed them as filthy. And, and so Jesus doesn't even acknowledge their racism. He, he says, look, I'm, I'm not a demon. I, I'm, I'm not even going to acknowledge that. Um, later on in the book of Acts, we see Peter. And, and Peter goes in and, and he at one point was eating with Gentiles. And then this other group of Jews come in and, and, and then Peter stops eating with this group of Gentiles and, and rejects them uh, because of their race. And here's the statement that the Apostle Paul makes to Peter. And, and I always find it so interesting. Peter looks at the at Paul. I'm sorry. Paul looks at Peter and, and, and tells him uh I confronted him to his face because what he was doing was out of step with the gospel. Meaning this racism is out of step with the gospel. 
Um, and, and, and so Jesus doesn't, and like I said, that's total speculation. Um, Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the fact that they've accused him of being a Samaritan. Um, our, our loving father loves people from all races, creeds, and, and he comes to save all of them that at the feet of Jesus and in the end, all people will, will bow and sing to King Jesus, people from every tribe, every tongue and every nation. Um, and so he calmly, plainly tells them, uh, I, I am not demon possessed. And, and then he makes this statement in that text. He says, I do not seek my own glory. Um, Jesus was so secure in the fact that his father was going to seek his glory. Um, he, he didn't even have to bother with it. The Jews wanted someone who was going to come in and seek his own glory. The Jews wanted a leader who was going to come in, who was going to shoot his mouth off. They wanted a leader. They wanted a Messiah who was going to come in and say, I've got it all figured out. You guys need to follow me. Here's what we're going to do. You guys go home, get your swords. Uh, we're, we're going to tomorrow at 12. We're going to all meet at the temple and we're going to attack and take over Rome. I've got it figured out. I've got the battle plan. You guys just follow me. That's the type of leader that, that the Jewish people were looking for. But Jesus does not come to glorify himself because he is so secure in the fact that the father is the one that, that is going to glorify him. And, and then he makes that statement. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Jesus is not concerned at all about what these people think about him. He is more concerned about pleasing the father. Um. When you obey God, okay, in, in your Christian walk, when, when you do the things that God tells you to do, when you're just obedient to him, when you're obedient to him in, in your marriage, when you're obedient to God with your time, with your talent, with your treasure, there is going to be opposition. Okay, uh, some of you have experienced this. Some of you have family members that look at you like you're crazy. What man, you, you sure do spend a lot of time at church. I mean, your whole weekend community group and then Sunday and then you're giving all this money to the church and you're sacrificing all this time. That's crazy. I mean, why would you ever do that? Um, some of you have friends that are like, man, I, every time I talk to you, you're just doing something at the church. You're volunteering this and doing that. Some of you experience that because when you obey God, people will oppose you. The question is this. Um, will you remain faithful and rest in the fact that it is God the Father who sees it and he is happy with you? Or will you fight for the approval of those people? I struggle with this. I, I, I really do. I, I struggle. I struggle with when, when I know I'm chasing after God. I know I'm doing what he has called me to do. And then people oppose me. Um, man, why are you doing this? What are you thinking? What's going on? W when they start opposing me, there's something inside of me that pushes me to do or say whatever is going to be pleasing to this person instead of doing or saying what is going to be pleasing to God. Um, and, and so Jesus here is totally fine. He is totally confident in just, you know what? I, I'm not here to seek my glory. The father, he's going to glorify me. So, so I'm not going to bend. I'm not going to budge. I'm not going to move. I'm going to stay faithful. I'm going to stay steadfast to the fact that I'm doing what God has called me to do. If you guys don't like it. Tough. I'm, I'm here on a mission from God. I'm here to glorify the father. And so for you ladies, when you're standing around in a circle and a bunch of ladies are gossiping about some other girl, are you going to say, hey, hang on, ladies, we're. 
we're erring into some gossip here. We've got to stay faithful to God. I think a lot of you, maybe maybe you would never say that. Why? Because you're worried about what they would think instead of being worried about what the father thinks. Um, and for you guys that go to work and, and you work at your job and um, a lot of the guys are, you know, kind of cutting out a little early. And, and you say, you know what, guys, I, I'm <laughs> boss pays us till five. I'm staying till five. And they're, oh, come on, man, don't be such a stick in the mud. What are you going to do there? Are you going to be faithful and, and do what God has called you to do and what God has told you to do? Or are you going to be worried about what they think and about what they say? Jesus is so secure in the fact that, man, what I'm doing is pleasing to my father. And if these guys oppose me, if these guys slander me, if these guys say stuff about me, it's okay. Because I have the approval of my father. Jesus goes um, to, to be faithful uh, to his mission and so here's the mission of Jesus that we, we say this around here all the time. Uh, God, the father sends God, the son um, to, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to come here, to live as a man, uh, to live the life that we should live. Uh, the life that we should live is a sinless perfection. That's the life we should live. Uh, but because we don't, then Jesus's mission is to come here and die in our place for our sins. That's the mission of Jesus and to proclaim who he is. So. We're about to see Jesus stay faithful to his mission. They've slandered him. They've yelled at him. They've, they've, they're about to throw things at him. But Jesus stays faithful to his mission. And verse 51 uh, has just been punched me in the head all week long. Uh, let's take a look at it and, and see what Jesus says. He, he sticks to his mission uh, by offering the salvation uh, that he came to earn. Here's what Jesus has to say in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Um, so last week we, we looked at a very similar text. Remember the, the text last week was if anyone abides in me here, he says, if if anyone keeps my word, if you abide in my word, he, he said that you will just look back over uh, at the, the text that we looked at last week. Um, verse 31, if you abide in my word here over in the text we're looking at tonight, it says, um, if you keep my word. So here's what we said last week, and I just want to talk about it again. Let's ask this question. What, what does he mean by Word. When, when he says, if you abide in my word here, he says, if you keep my word, what does he mean by word? Um, I, I take that to mean the sum of his teaching. If you keep my word, if you if you adopt or adapt all of what it is that I'm teaching. OK, so if that's the case, that only begs another question. What is the sum of Jesus teaching? What is all of what he is saying? I mean, how can we boil that down into, I mean, Jesus teaches a whole bunch of, he teaches about divorce and money and hell and uh, salvation, death. And I mean, what, what is the sum of Jesus teaching? Well, uh, last week I, I asked you to go along with me and, and think on it this way, uh, that Jesus makes these big key statements. He says, I am the bread. I am the light. I am the living water. I am the vine. I am the shepherd. So I take the sum of Jesus teaching to be himself. He is the sum of his teaching. So when Jesus says, if you 
keep my word, he, he is saying, if you keep me at the very center of your life, if, if you view your entire life through the lens of the gospel, if you view your entire life through Jesus. So I, I began to ask questions last week like this. Is Jesus the center of your marriage? Is Jesus the center of your finances? Is Jesus the center of your thinking? Is Jesus the center of your sex life? Is Jesus the center of on and on and on? If you keep it, if you abide in it, if you believe in it, if you live in my word, meaning if you believe in me, if you abide in me, if I, Jesus, am the very center of your entire life. Okay, so this is a conditional statement. He says, if you keep my word, if I'm the very center, then. So this is the conditional statement. If then. If I'm the very center of your life, then you will never see death. Um, what does he mean? <laughs> what does he mean you'll never see death? Who in here has a family member that's died? Uh, who in here has friends or, or family that's passed away? I mean, like we, we see people die all the time. I know godly people who love Jesus and Jesus was the very center of their life and they died. So what does he mean here that if you keep me as the center of your life, you'll never see death? Um, let's go chapter 11. Go to John chapter 11. Very famous story of when Jesus raises Lazarus from the death and dead. And, and when we look at this text, we can get a better understanding of what he means when he says you'll never see death. Verse 25, it's not going to come up on the screen. I'll just read it to you. Then Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So, so Jesus begins to paint this picture of a death, but where there is still life. <laughs> OK, maybe this will be helpful. Uh, when, when the Bible talks about death, it talks about it in, in kind of three arenas. And I want to talk about those three arenas because it's going to help us wrap our minds around this idea that um, we die, but we don't die. <laughs> that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. So, so what are the three ways of thinking that the Bible has on death? What are the three arenas um, that, that the Bible would explain death to us? Number one is a physical death. OK, um, sometimes when the Bible says death, it means literally death, like you die, like uh, right here in, in chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. He's in the tomb, a physical death. So when the, the scriptures talk about death, sometimes it means you died, right? you they put you in the box, drop you in the ground. You're dead. Uh, another way that the Bible will talk about death is a spiritual death, talking about the state of the unbelieving soul. OK, we, we kind of major on that around here. We, we talk about um, how people as unbelievers, they, they are spiritually dead. We would look to Ephesians chapter two that says you are dead in your sins. And, and so we are born into a sinful world. We continue to sin. And because of that, we are spiritually dead. Um, and then here's the third way that the Bible will talk about death is the idea of eternal death, meaning this. This is to describe the wrath of God visited upon unbelievers after their physical death. OK, we would look to texts such as Roman. Uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It says this is the second death and it is the lake of fire. OK, so we have physical death. We have spiritual death 
and we have eternal death. Okay, Um, so so which death is Jesus talking about here? He just says, if you if you keep my word, that's it. You you will never see death. So which death is in view here? Uh, I think it's very easy to see that the death that is in view here um, is the eternal death, the the second death here. He's speaking of eternal death. Um, Here's what Jesus is saying to to these Jewish leaders who have just mocked him, who have just said evil things about him. uh, What Jesus just said is that the wrath of God is waiting for you. So you are going to die physically. And after you die physically, there's going to be an eternal death that comes after that. And that is the wrath of God. That is visited upon those um, who do not abide in the word of Jesus. Jesus paints a very grim picture. He paints a, a very dark picture that if these men do not begin to reorient their life around Jesus, that they are going to die physically. And after their physical death, there's going to be an eternal death where the wrath of God comes to bear on those who reject his son. Um, this is not a popular teaching. <laughs> um This really doesn't sell a lot of books. This isn't uh, what people love to hear about. But but Jesus here is begging and pleading with them. Don't do this. The bridge is out. Abide in me. Abide in my word. Reorient your life around me because there is an eternal death that is going to bear on you in the form of the wrath of God. um, If if you don't turn your life around. Okay. Um, so three quick things in addition that, that I want to say here. Um, Jesus here is not talking about annihilation. Okay. What is annihilation? Annihilation is the false um, doctrine that those people who do not receive Christ, they die um, and then they go to judgment and they are judged. You are not my child. Um, and then basically God just annihilates them forever. They cease to exist, period. That is not what is in view here. We can look to Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 8, verse 12, where Jesus says that um, once the eternal death comes, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In addition, in Mark 9, verse 43, Jesus says that there will be an unquenchable fire. So so when you die, it's not like you just cease to exist. God just doesn't destroy you completely because there is weeping, gnashing of teeth. There is a literal consciousness that comes um, with with the torments of hell. In addition, we're not talking about purgatory. Uh, Hebrews nine will tell us uh, it, it is up to a man once to die and then comes judgment. Uh, There is no scripture, period, paragraph in the 66 books found in the Bible that mention purgatory or talk about purgatory. Purgatory is the doctrine that there is a place in between uh, heaven and hell that souls go to wait. Um, This is an incorrect doctrine. Um, There are extra biblical books. There are books outside of the Bible that actually talk about this. And that's where that doctrine comes from. Uh, But but you die and then you're judged and, and that's it. Then you're there. Um, Jesus also looks to the other thief on the cross and says, today you will be with me in paradise, meaning today, right now. There's no kind of middle ground. Um, In addition, uh, Jesus is not talking about soul sleep. 
which is another doctrine that says once you die, uh, what happens is you, your soul goes into a state of sleep um, in, in, in a state where you don't really realize what's happening. You don't really know how much time has passed. And then once Jesus comes back, then everyone is awakened um, and then the judgment happens. Uh, that's in addition, not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, we would look to uh, a scripture like Second Corinthians uh, chapter five, verse eight, uh, where Paul teaches us that to be absent from the body um, is to be present with the Lord. So here's the summary. Step one, you die. Step two, immediately you are judged. Step three, those who keep his word live with him forever and do not experience death. But those who do not. They experience death and are separated from him forever in a place of eternal conscious torment. So for all of you Baptists who like uh, fire and brimstone, there you go. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Um, that, that's that's what the Bible teaches. This is a scary, heavy, weighty doctrine. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, if you Keep my word. You will not have to experience the wrath of God bearing down on you. Don't do it. If you are here and you are a non-believer, I beg you, the wrath of God is coming for you. You will die. And, and if you are not abiding in him, if you are not staying with him, if Jesus is not the center of your life, then the wrath of God is coming for you. You will spend eternity separated from him in a very real place called hell. I have to tell you this. I don't like telling you this. I want to talk about, you know, puppies and kittens and happy things. But I have to tell you this because it's in the Bible and it's true. That this is what the scripture teaches us. That, that this is the fate of everyone. Either we will be face to face with Jesus or we will be cast out of his presence in a place of conscious eternal torment. This is what Jesus warns uh, the Jewish leaders of. And here's their response in verse 52 verse uh, through verse 53. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus says, um, I, I'm offering you a lifeline. I'm offering you an alternate destination. If you die without loving me, serving me, being all about me, then what is going to happen is the wrath of God is going to bear down on you. I'm, I'm begging you. I'm pleading with you. Don't go down that road. Avoid the torments and, and terror of hell. And they say, what are you talking about? They have no idea or no concept that really what he's talking about is eternal death. What they think he's talking about is physical death. They, they say, well, you know, Abraham, I mean, he knows a lot about God. I mean, he was a pretty holy guy, yet he physically died. What about all the prophets? I mean, they physically died. Are you telling us that you're offering us some other type of righteousness that's going to keep us from physical death? Jesus is saying, no, I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about spiritual. I'm talking about eternal death. But but they absolutely don't get it. And they curse him for for being a demon again. 
Now, a lot of times in, in those days when they curse somebody for a demon, it was because they were acting wild or crazy and they would say, man, that guy's got a demon. Uh, right. Like in, uh, in in Luke chapter eight, where Jesus comes and there's that naked guy who like lived in the tombs and stuff. And, you know, he was acting all crazy because he was possessed by a demon. So so when they would call somebody a demon, they were saying, dude, you're being absolutely crazy. They, they, they totally miss what Jesus is getting after here. And, and they curse him for for having a, a, a demon. Verse 54 through 56. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is the father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus lovingly points out where they're absolutely wrong. He says, you're a liar. You're lying. You don't understand. If if I say that I don't know God, if I say that I'm not from him, if I say that I haven't come here on God's mission to, to offer you this gift of salvation, if I say that those things aren't true, then I'm a liar just like you are. You're lying. And and then he makes this really interesting statement. And what Jesus is doing here is there again, he's he's correcting their theology. These guys love Abraham. They are all about being the children of Abraham. These guys have Abraham action figures. They have Abraham lunchboxes. Uh, I mean, it's just all the way down. Abraham bedsheets. I mean, the, these guys, they, they got this poster on the wall. They are all about Abraham. And, and what Jesus is saying is you, you don't know Abraham. You don't know anything about him. You you miss what he is all about. What was Abraham all about? Abraham was all about Jesus. Abraham is showing them the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament all the way through the new. So in Genesis, what happens is God creates the garden and it's a beautiful place where man and, and, and can have face to face communion with him. It said that they walked together in the cool of the day and man had a, a relationship with God that was just, I mean, amazing face to face, naked, without shame. He had community with his wife. He had community with God that was in an unbroken state. And then what happened? is sin enters in and it breaks that communion with God. It breaks that communion with his wife. Um, and, and then the whole rest of the scripture, every bit of it is about how God redeemed that broken act For, from beginning to end, from the Old Testament to the prophets, to the wisdom literature, to the gospels, to the epistles, to the book of Revelation, from beginning to end, the whole Bible is about God's redeeming story. It's about Jesus coming. It's about God sending the son. The son comes and he lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we should have died, empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can live. That, that's what Abraham was all about. Uh, apparently, he, he says right here, um, your, your father Abraham rejoiced the day and that he saw it. Commentators are, I, I read a bunch of different commentaries on this, but, but they're really kind of divided on exactly when Abraham saw the day of Jesus, saw Jesus coming. But at some point in Abraham's life, uh, God basically, you know, pulled back the curtain of time and allowed Abraham to see the future that Jesus was going to come, that Jesus was going to be the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. God shows up to Abraham and, and makes Abraham this promise. He, he says, I'm, I'm going to bless the whole world. Every nation is going to be blessed through you. 
And eventually what happens is Abraham has kids and then their kids have kids and their kids have kids. And eventually through the line of Abraham comes Jesus. And he is a blessing to every nation, to every man, to every tribe, to every tongue. And so God takes Abraham at some point. We don't know when, but he, but he pulls back the curtain and he allows Abraham to see the day of Jesus. And, and Abraham is just, I mean, he's rejoicing. He's excited. He saw, man, God is going to fulfill his promise and send a savior. That is amazing. He rejoiced. That word means to leap or to jump. I mean, Abraham was just, he got off the chain when, when he saw that, that Jesus was going to come and was going to do this amazing thing. And so Jesus tells these Jewish leaders who who think that they're all about Abraham. They know Abraham. We love Abraham. And Jesus says, you don't get it. Abraham was about me. Abraham was about me coming. Abraham was about God sending his son to redeem all of creation. Um, you, you have to know that that for them, I mean, that this is just an absolute uh, slap in the face. I mean, to say we we have the Abraham lunchbox, you know, how how dare you say we, we don't know about it with the matching thermos, you know, how dare you say we don't know about Abraham and that he rejoiced to see your day. Who do you think you are? I mean, who, who do you think you are that that Abraham would even be mindful of your existence to say that he rejoiced to see your day, meaning that you're the Messiah, meaning that your day has come, that. I mean, you have to see this is a total outrage to these men that, that Jesus is saying. And, and and I want you to kind of get a sense that as soon as Jesus makes this statement that, hey, Abraham rejoiced, he saw my day coming and he rejoiced that, that those men. I mean, I'm sure they began to, to stand up and I mean, they're already paced around looking for rocks. They're cracking their knuckles. You know, they're, they're getting ready to, to rumble. And here's the question uh, that they that they asked Jesus. Verse 57. So Jesus, uh, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was. I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's a very logical question, isn't it? You're not even 50 yet. We know Jesus was around 30. So that, that you're not even 50 yet. How, how can how can you know Abraham? How can you see Abraham? How dare you speak that about our our fearless leader, Abraham? And, and they're getting ready to, you know, just tackle Jesus and, and, and hold him down so they can heard him and, and Jesus makes this statement yet again before Abraham was I am um, Jesus is making two very distinct and very unique claims when, when he says before Abraham was I am one he's saying uh, that he pre-existed Abraham okay before Abraham was I am you want to know how I know Abraham? You, you want to know um, why I seem to be the authority on Abraham? Well, because b before Abraham existed, I existed. I, I am the God man. I existed outside of time. OK, so when God, the father thought up Abraham and created him, I was there when Abraham was born. I was there when Abraham had children. I was there when Abraham died. I was there because I'm Jesus and I exist outside of time. He was making a claim that he is eternal, but, but that's not the only claim he was making. Okay. Because notice what he said. He said before Abraham was, I am, he didn't say before Abraham was, 
I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. Right. And, and, and then as soon as he makes that statement, what happens? They, they start picking up rocks and they get ready to stone him. So apparently whatever it is that that means really, really, really irritated them. Why did that irritate them so bad? Well, if we go back and we travel back into the book of Exodus, we, we see it in, in Exodus chapter three, uh, verse 14. Moses is is walking around and there's this burning bush and he's like, dude, why isn't that bush burning up? And so he goes over and and all of a sudden God begins to speak through this shrub that's on fire. OK, God does awesome stuff like that. Um, so, so he begins to speak through this shrub that's on fire. Um, the, the shrub that's on fire tells Moses, you need to go and, and talk to Pharaoh and, and get my people out of Egypt. And Moses asks a very important question. Who should I say sent me? Um, you know, I've come in the name of the burning shrub. Let my people go. That's weird. Um, so, so he asked the shrub, uh, that God was speaking through to give a name. So, so when I go and I announce to the nation of Israel, we're getting out of here, guys. I've come on the name of. So he, he asked the, the, the shrub that God was speaking through to give a name. And, and so the name that, that the shrub tells him is tell them I am sent you. So not only does Jesus make the claim uh, that, that he is eternal, that he preexisted Abraham, but he's also making the claim I am God, I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. I am the God of the Bible. And with that, with no trial, uh, with no jury, uh, they begin to um, institute the punishment that comes with blasphemy, uh, which in that day was stoning. That they would literally throw rocks at you until you died. Why does Jesus say this? I mean, why, why would he say something so controversial? Why would he, I mean, to, just to throw it out there like that. I mean, could he, couldn't he have thought of a softer way to say it? Maybe a better way to say it that wouldn't have incited them to violence? Here's what Jesus wants to do. And here's why he says it. And here's what Jesus wants them to see. He wants them to see that, that God had to come. Okay. So, so by saying before Abraham was, I am, I am God. He wants those Jewish people to know God had to show up. Okay. We, we are drowning in a sea of sin and we needed somebody to come save us. And so Jesus in bodily form is standing there saying, I'm God because God had to come and save you because humanity is totally helpless, totally, utterly helpless. And, and we needed a savior to show up. And so he says, the savior is here. God is here. But not only does he want him to see that God had to come. But the second part of that is Jesus wanted them to see that he had to come in bodily form. OK, why you guys ever think about that? I mean, why, why did Jesus have to come in bodily form? I mean, he could have come in spirit form, like a like a floating ball of light, you know, just kind of buzzing around, like saying stuff. He could have come in any form he wanted to. Why does why does he come in in human form? Why does he have a, a body? Well, he comes in a body so that body can be killed and die. That, that's why he comes in a body. He comes in a body so that body can die so that Jesus gets death. We get life. Jesus body is beaten and destroyed and, and, and mangled so that our bodies don't have to be. 
That's why. So when Jesus proclaims before Abraham was, I am, he is proclaiming, I am the God man who has come to die so that you can live. That, that's that's why he says that. Okay, kind of kind of a big part in Scripture, kind of a mega theme throughout all of the Bible that Jesus has come to die so that we can live. He, he says, if you keep my word, if you stay in my word, you will never see death. I come to die so that you can live. Um, what, what does that mean for us? What, what does that mean that? I mean, that, that we get to live eternally with Jesus. I mean, how does that is, is there any implication today compared to eternity? So when I think about forever with Jesus, what does that mean for me today? If anything, are there eternal implications? Are there implications today when, when I look and see I'm, I'm obeying Jesus here and now? Um, so, so I'm going to be with him forever. So how does that impact my life today. I mean, I've got a job and a house and we've got a new baby and, you know, does that change any of that? Does that change my thinking? Does it should it change my worldview that forever I'm going to be face to face with Jesus? I would say absolutely it does. Absolutely. That this truth, this this central truth to the scriptures should radically change everything about you. That it should change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you view. Everything should come through this funnel of, I'm going to be forever face to face with Jesus for eternity. Um, and, and so today is different because I'm going to be eternally be with Jesus. Um, as a point of uh, application, here are some ways that today changes in light of eternity. Number one, uh, I live generously. I live generously because I'm going to be with Jesus forever. Um, the, the text says in, in uh, John chapter uh, 14 that in my father's house, there are many rooms. You, you're going to be living in a house with Jesus, Jesus house. OK, you, you guys have seen cribs. The, those are like outhouses compared to the, the house that you're going to be living in with Jesus. Some translations say mansions. I think that's a horrible translation. Um, the, the scripture really points to us living with with God. I don't think we'll be like, you know, on the other side of the block, you know, and Jesus comes out in the morning with his coffee and waves to you down the street. I, I think it, it, it is it gives us the idea um, that in his house, in God's house, there are many rooms. So we'll be living in God's house with him. So so if that's true, like if it's true that I'm going to I'm going to be living in God's house and have access to his stuff. Me hanging on to things here in this life seems really, really silly. So so my stuff like me accumulating lots of toys and trinkets and things to, to build up my accumulation of stuff seems really silly thinking about eternity, me living in the very house of God forever. Not to mention, I've never seen a, a hearse with a U-Haul on it. You don't, you don't get to take your stuff with you. And even if you did, I mean, like if you were able to take your record collection to heaven, right? You walk in there and you've got your record collection and then you look over and see Jesus record collection. It makes yours look really silly. Do, do you get that? Do, do you see how when, when we look at eternity with Christ, it makes us incredibly generous? I don't I don't need this crap. 
because I'm going to have eternity with him. You know, so I've got, you know, uh, 73 years here on this earth with all of my silly little toys and trinkets compared to eternity with all of God's toys and trinkets. Um, you know, suddenly my truck looks really ridiculous. My, my house looks really ridiculous. And so it, it frees us up to give and give and give and live such a way that's absolutely generous in light of eternity with him. Here's another thing that it changes as a point of application. Number two, it drives us to tell people about Jesus. We talk about this here all the time. Missional living, missional living, that, that you should view your life as a missionary. You, you're here. You need to um, discover the people groups that live around you. Figure out how to speak their language. Live life alongside of them so that you can tell them about Jesus. Because the harsh reality that Jesus has just dropped on these Jewish leaders, that there is an eternal death. There's a physical death, then there's an eternal death where the wrath of God comes to bear on those who are not his children. That that should scare you to death. It it should make your heart hurt for lost people. And in addition to know that one day I'm going to be face to face with my savior uh, begins to stir something in me that is so beautiful that I cannot help but to share with other people. So, so I, I should be running door to door, begging people, talking with people. Don't you want to be forever with Jesus, with me in his house? So, so when I look at eternity, when I view eternity, it changes things for me today because it drives me to tell other people about him. It drives me to beg and to plead with other people in this community to come and live forever in the house of God. In addition, the, the fact that he saves us from Death also makes me want to build his church. There are a lot of things that you can build. You can build houses. You can build cars. You can build your career. um, You can build your reputation. There's tons of things that you can build. The problem is all of those things perish. All of those things will fall apart. All of those things will wither. The moths are going to come and eat it. It's it's going to deteriorate and fall apart. But when you build God's church, it never dies. It never goes away. It's always going to be here because Jesus, either you're going to die and and be up there with him, with the church. And one day Jesus is going to come back and call his church. His church endures forever. Um, and, And so you're able to Look at eternity and see that the church will last forever. And so I'm going to be faithful to gospel community church. I'm going to I'm going to serve. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give. I'm going to pour my talent and my treasure and my heart into the church because it's going to last forever. So so we're all about planting more churches. We planted this one. We but by God's grace, we'll plant more if if he would allow. And so we, we just want to plant churches. They're going to keep planting churches. They're going to plant more churches out of this church so that we're growing and building what is going to endure forever. That, that's how our life changes. When we look at eternity, it changes things today. Um, fourthly, point of application. Um, today changes in light of eternity uh, because we devote ourselves to a relationship with him. Um, If in this in this life, I have an opportunity to love and to serve and to press into my relationship with Jesus, man, it's amazing practice for what I'm going to be doing for all of eternity. 
The, the most significant and important relationship that I have today is my relationship with Jesus. And if I'm going to be spending eternity with him face to face, I, I, I need to learn everything that I can about him. So I, I look to scriptures and podcasts and commentaries and systematic theologies. And, and I take every bit of information that I can get my hands on, every morsel of truth about who Jesus is. And I, and I take that in and I don't just stop there. I then take that truth and I allow it to transform into worship. Do you see how that happens? That the more you learn about him, the more you pour into knowledge about who Jesus is, that knowledge then transforms into worship. So when I learn about how loving God is, I then worship him for being a loving God. When I learn about God's sovereignty, I worship him for being a sovereign God. So, so by view of forever, I'm going to be with him today. I want to learn all I can about him so that. That will then turn into worship. Because I'm going to be forever with him in heaven. Lastly. Number five. Um, it changes everything because you begin to point your friends and your family to him. Um, when I think about face to face with Jesus. Um, standing on eternity shore, uh, surrounded by um, the, the heavenly host, surrounded by um, other brothers and sisters in Christ um, a, as Jesus comes out. And, and I imagine just the sea of people begin to lift up their voices and sing to King Jesus. When when I look to my right, I, I, I want to see my wife there. When, when I look to my left, I, I want my daughter to be standing next to me. I, I want to begin to point and to push everyone in my realm of influence to Jesus. Because in eternity, we will be there and we will be with him face to face with Jesus, lifting up our voices, singing to King Jesus, spending time with King Jesus. And so what I what I must do today in light of eternity is take my friends and my family and, and as a man and as a leader, begin to point them to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about King Jesus. Let me close with this. Hebrews, this is not going to come up on the screen. I'm just going to read it. Hebrews chapter two. But we see him for a little while as he was made a little bit lower than the angels. For it was fitting, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. For it was fitting that for he and by whom all things exist and bringing many to sons of glory should be made the founder of the salvation perfect through his suffering. Jesus tastes death so that we don't have to. Jesus tastes death so that we get eternal life with him. My hope and my prayer is that when they put you in that coffin. And everyone gathers. That the preacher stands and says. He's not dead. She's not dead. May that may that happen for the people at Gospel Community Church. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that um, today would change in light of eternity. Um, I, I pray that our hearts would be 
stirred for you, that uh, we would be drawn to you, um, and, and that because of this thought of eternity, be, because of um, this idea of eternity face to face with you, that our lives would, would begin to transform, that I don't have to hang on to all this stuff. It's not important um, that, that I want to push and call everyone to you to be face to face with you. God, that our lives are just radically changed by the fact that we're going to be in heaven with you forever, singing songs about you, learning more and more about you. Father, help us to, to worship you for the fact that um, you tasted death for all of us. That now we don't we don't have to taste death because you you tasted it for us. How, how can we live such a life that is changed uh, because of eternity? Well, we can do that because you tasted death and we don't have to. So help our hearts and our minds to be drawn to that. Help our, our hearts and our minds to be drawn to the fact that you are the great I am. And so, God, as we move into our time of communion, as we sing, uh, God, stir our hearts for worship. Help us to sing as a community, to open up our mouths, to open up our hearts and pour out praise to the great I am. We ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen.